I'm Tim Robinson, Editor-in-Chief of Aerospace Magazine, and with me is Deputy Editor Steve Bridgewater and Features Editor Bella Richards. Welcome to Aerospace NOTAM, another edition of our regular series of new podcasts looking at global aviation, aerospace and space news, and what we have in the upcoming next issue of Aerospace, November 2023. In the magazine, we cover everything from GA to spaceflight, from airliners to airports, from air law to EV tolls. And again, it's been another really busy month of uh, news uh, around the global aerospace scene. Um, so first off, let's uh, let's have a, a check in with the team and and see what we've been up to. Uh, Steve, what have you been up to in the uh, in the past month? Um, busy month for me within the UK this time. For once, no no travelling around, which is a bit wow. uh, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's been the end of the UK air show season for me. So um, final trip to Old Warden to the Shuttleworth Collection. Um, for their race day, so nice. Tra- think travel air mystery ships and Percival Mugles and wonderful thirties classics like that, and the final Duxford show of the year, which also happened to be the fiftieth anniversary of the very first Duxford air show oh, in yeah. October nineteen seventy three. So, um, a really good event actually. Um, nice way to, um, uh, to 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 mark the uh, the fiftieth anniversary. A-, a couple of notable absences, um, but uh, on the whole, a great show. Finished with some some big piston fighters. Um, so, I guess that's it now for UK air shows till May next year. So, um, going to the, the fallow period of the winter now. And you saw the Tempest out there, didn't you? I did. The Tempest was there. It didn't fly. Um, uh, it, uh, it flew during the week for its maiden flight um, from Sywell, uh, landed at Duxford, and it was on static display and brilliantly parked alongside a Hawker Fury, a 1930s vintage. So. Uh, from the from the thirties Fury to the uh, to the late forties Tempest Two, and I think as we've said on this podcast before, perhaps the most eagerly awaited Warbird restoration in many many years. You know the the, the Tempests, their their ex Indian Air Force airframes, they came out of India in nineteen seventy nine, and wow. we've waited mm, wow. till twenty twenty three to see one in the air. Been a number of false starts, but um, Graham Peacock and the team at Richard Gracie's Air Leasing have finally got the Tempest in the air and. What a, what a machine. Can't wait to see that at air shows next year, hopefully with the Sea Fury. So uh, could you imagine yeah, the Hawker Fury, then a Hawker Hurricane, then a Hawker Sea Fury and a Hawker Tempest? Just hearing that is going to be uh, is gonna be brilliant. Yeah, indeed. Uh, fantastic. Bella, what about you? What have you been d- doing? Yeah, I had a... Oh, I didn't go anywhere um, that exciting, but I did uh, attend a really exciting uh, press briefing earlier in the month um, with Astroscale. Uh, and their upcoming Address J, or, you know, Active Debris Removal by Astroscale Japan mission, um, which will be a kind of up-close-and-personal encounter with a piece of uncontrolled orbital debris um, through kind of the first time using rendezvous and proximity operations, not rendezvous, which I've been <laughs> saying incorrectly this, all these years. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... It's really exciting, um, and it'll you know this mission will offer new insights of you know what space junk looks like after being in space for so long, and kind of offering insights that ground stations can't really provide. Um, and I think it'll be you know it's it's supposed to be a precursor to eventually when um, Astroscale and many other companies you know grab hold of a piece of space yeah. debris and deorbit it, um, just to kind of look at what it actually looks like, because I think that is something. Uh, that's really interesting and maybe forgotten um, that what does it actually look like is it the same like how how is uh, you know radiation and everything impacted this piece of junk um, that we can't tell from the ground um, and so I so uh, one of the uh, guys at the company said that um, this mission will you know obviously of course help with deorbiting in the future but uh, open up a lot of opportunities for other applications like companies who may not want to deorbit something but may just want to see what their spacecraft looks like yeah. how, how it is up close um if there's anything on it that they can't see from the ground or inspection work exactly yeah. inspection yeah. work which is obviously you know growing and becoming a big thing already um but yeah I, it was it was a really interesting event um and obviously it was supposed to launch in november uh but that's been delayed i'm not sure when it's 
going to be launching now, but I'm sure it'll be soon. And it was, mm. it was a really good event. But yeah, it's been a good month. There's been so much, so much happening. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think on on orbit inspection is it's kind of a growing, yeah, know, a growing kind of yeah. uh, sort of a uh, sort of like you know kind of a little little industry sort of niche there for for the space industry of oh yeah, I want to check on my satellite or I want to check on somebody else's satellites. Well, uh, especially after the, the the article we had in last month's magazine about space warfare and, yeah. you know, and the, the risk of, of satellites being perhaps attacked for nefarious uh, reasons, then, yeah, yeah this is going to yeah. an increasingly important role, isn't it? Yeah, you know, checking, it, is, is it my, you know, is it my solar, solar panels that have uh, something wrong with, or is yeah. it actually, you know, somebody who's... It's actually it's a like yeah. Yeah. little in-space doctor, you know, yeah. check on their is it okay? Yeah, good point, yeah. Great. So what, what have you been up to? Well, I haven't been, uh, I've been um, anywhere too exciting, but we did have uh, the Brabazon lecture here at uh, RSHQ. Uh, that was given by uh, Stuart Wingate, CEO of, of Gatwick Airport and his head of planning. Uh, so they've got, uh, obviously, Gatwick Airport. They've got big plans there to do a development of uh, their second runway. They have got a, like a northern runway there. Yeah. It's un, unused at the moment, and they can reckon they can get more, squeeze more capacity out of the airport um, by just shifting the centre line just slightly to the north. Um, mm, right. So the good thing about this is they don't need to build any... Uh, they don't need to, 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 to buy up villages or, or yeah. get any extra land. It's all going to take place within... <laughs> Uh, the uh, the boundaries of the existing airport, but it's just moving it slightly, slightly to the north, so you can accommodate you know uh, airliners, bit the bigger airliners really. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, really good, really good lecture. Probably a really good save sort. a lot of costs by doing that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's having that extra resilience and extra capacity, and it's one of the things we've 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 found out in uh, in COVID and also things like uh, when we get hot weather and 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 you know some airports have have, have problems there with. Um, yeah. Melting tarmac. Melting tarmac, yeah. or you get some airports get closed because of well, a, a fire. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, we've seen fire. this month, haven't we? Fire, with Luton. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Luton Airport closed down because of because of. Uh, I mean, imagine imagine trying to land through that. Sort of, uh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, good visual reference. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a beacon, isn't it? Load, load of burning cars, but um, yeah, yeah having having this extra capacity in there. So that's, that's uh, it was a really interesting yeah. lecture, and also what, what they're doing on the the uh, the environmental and the sustainability sort of front as well. You know, kind okay. of uh, they're actually trying to get uh, their aggressive sort of net zero uh, targets. They're actually trying to to, to get their uh, you know ahead ahead of time. So yeah, yeah, yeah really good lecture. Well. I also went to the RF Museum. Oh, right. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, tell us. I, you know, I grew up in the Midlands, so RAF Cosford is what the Aerospace Museum was, was, was probably the, the, the museum which got me involved in, in aerospace as a, a hobby and a career. Yeah. Um, so I went back for the first time in a couple of years, went to the air show this year, but didn't get a chance to see the museum. So I went back and was astounded to see some of the aeroplanes had been parked outside and some of the, the really unique... Um, what aircraft? You'd be part of a flight test hangar. Yeah. So um, things like Saunders Row SR fifty three, the Hunting one two six, which you got those blown flaps. Yeah. On. Some some really unique aircraft been dumped on the grass outside, mm. and it just really grated with me. Um, and especially because there's quite a lot of space inside one of well two of the hangars, but certainly one of them, which I spoke to one of the the volunteers, and they said was there for event space. But, you know. It's, I'm sure UK listeners will know, we've recently had Storm Babette go through the UK causing havoc and there were five you know, unique priceless aeroplanes sat outside on the grass without even a tie down. Yeah. Um, wow. And I appreciate, you know, I, I've worked in the museum industry, I know, I know that you know, there's a need to be commercial, there's a need to make money, but when you've got an empty hangar space there and you've got air, the, the, you know, with a big rolling hangar door next to it, it just it seemed amazing to me and nonsensical that these aeroplanes had not been pulled inside, at least for the storm, and they've been outside for the best part of a year now. Yeah. And um, I, I, I posted this onto my, my Facebook and to my LinkedIn accounts, and um, suffice to say, it's got quite a lot of interesting discussion <laughs> and debate going. So uh, if anybody wants to have a look at those, they're both, you don't have to be friends or connections. So if you look at Stephen Bridgewater with a PH, you'll see the debate on there. But mm. um, it's something I just want to look a bit more into. It's uh, I know the Royal Aeronautical Society heritage is not really our, our, our raison d'etre, but on a personal level, it was something that really grated with me. Yeah. I think one of those things uh, is, is, is that once you, once you put something out there and it does deteriorate, 
you know, then you have to spend more time, you know, eventually it'll come, it, come around to a time when people, people go, oh, hang on, you know, there's that out there and it's in such a state. Well, uh, well, do you remember the Blackburn Beverly that the RAF Museum scrapped because it was in such bad condition? Well, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? We leave the aeroplanes outside, they get into a bad condition, we have to scrap them. Yeah, so. I um, mean, already after, you know, the year, the, the paint's faded on these and amazingly there's a sign on the you know the the, the meteor f8 prone position yeah you know, the, the with the long nose where the the, the test pilot in the front who lay on his front to fly the airplane in the prone position uh, there's a sign on that airplane saying please don't worry if you see birds going in they live there um and i thought that how can that be conducive to to, to good preservation but uh, anyway rant over sorry all right okay. <laughs> something to something there there to watch out for in the in the preservation world then so um so moving on to current uh, news events, uh, uh, obviously it has been a, a, a packed uh, full month full of news. So, uh, Bella, what have you mm. what have you been, been been looking at on your news? Uh, yeah. What's caught your eye? A lot has caught my eye this month. <laughs> it was so busy, but actually the ones I'm going to mention are very very recent, as of the last few days. Um, the first one that is you know quite exciting from the UK is that the UK Space Agency announced um, UK astronauts could fly to space on a future Axiom space mission, um, which is pretty exciting. Um, I think the UK is the fourth or fifth country to sign with Axiom. I, I think it's the fourth country. Um, I, I was so they released a um, you know press announcement about it, and I kind of clicked into the you know see more details um, if you want to be part of it. And uh, so the agency is uh, asking UK universities, research institutions, um, and industry to kind of share their ideas, because I think what's supposed to happen is that the astronauts will go up into space for, I think, two weeks and, you know, conduct studies and experiments. And the industry can be a part of that and kind of request, hey, we want you to study our thing or whatever. Okay. Um, and so it has support from the European Space Agency. I'm not really sure how they're kind of involved together, but... Um, I clicked into it and it said the potential future mission could be a flight to the International Space Station. I don't know what else it would be. Like, it makes sense that it would be the ISS. Yeah. If, um, it's, if it's a two weeks, I mean, so Axiom have used Crew Dragon there. Yeah. Yeah. So two weeks floating around in, in that is going to get pretty, uh, pretty the, cramped. I, I, I can't <laughs> imagine. I, I can only imagine. And Axiom Space has only sent people to the ISS. So it makes sense that it would be to the yeah. ISS. Um, but uh, I also looked a bit deeper and saw that they had like a timeline of kind of when the project should be ready. And it said that, so the project should commence by end of March, 2024. You should be able to deliver your payload by March, 2025 with the capability of being launched in April, 2025. So I don't know if this is, this is obviously not set so, launch date. So that, that's about three years then uh, before then the ISS kind of, deorbits is it wouldn't be on a, like a private space station that people other people are talking yeah, about yeah no no, no. Yeah. yeah i think it's deorbiting in 2030 right 2031 so yeah um and it said you know the project should have a strong justification for requiring requiring use of the iss um so it doesn't get in the way of all the other astronauts on there um but yeah i think that'll be really exciting i'm excited to see what projects come out of it and you know so is this open to industry and academia yeah, it's yeah. It, uh, as in for like what um, what experiments are yeah. going to be on board. Yeah, universities, research institutions, and industry. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, I think there's also a big STEM outreach exactly. uh, thing there. I mean, I, when I looked at it, I thought it, I thought that it was this is this is UK buying a, a single seat. Yeah, no. uh, rather than chartering the entire spaceship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think about how how popular. Uh, Tim Peake's outreach, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he became a, a global, worldwide, you know, uh, kind of figure for, from his flight um, yeah. for astronauts, potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know for, for certain. Yeah. Uh, one of those could be the first para-astronaut. Yeah. Uh, who's, oh, who's his name, John? Uh, um, John so, John McFarlane. Um, so that would be that would be pretty uh, pretty exciting stuff yeah, for, for really UK exciting. space. And hopefully they stick to that timeline because that's you know that's soon. <laughs> Ultimately, that's less than two years away. So, yeah. Um, and then my other thing that caught my eye, which I'm sure everyone it caught everyone's eye, which was um, Qatar Airways Akbar Al Baker resigns, or you know, <laughs> uh, has announced he won't be working for Qatar anymore on the fifth of November. I think it is. Um, after 27 years, one of like 
the yeah, longest. Yeah, that's unheard of in yeah. the industry, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we all know his controversial nature, um, but, you know, he's... Oh, on the other side, he has pretty much transformed that company. Um, but, yeah, so there's a... The new CEO will be the former Hamad Airport uh, CEO, uh, Mr. Mohammed Almir. Um, I think he's been the CEO of the airport since 2014, so he has a lot of experience. Um, yeah, there's not much knowledge on why Al Baker is le leaving. I, Aviation Week did say sources mentioned that he didn't leave voluntarily, but you know, I'm not really sure. It hasn't been okay. Yeah, um, and that he would have wanted story to continue. Then, isn't it, this one? Yeah. Oh yeah. So. Um, and he was even interested in becoming the uh, chairman, um, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, and it's, you never know, because, you know, he did a lot for the company, so ultimately, without seeing his controversies, you could just look at, wow, like, yeah. he, he seemed like he completely transformed, um, you know, I, I believe when he first took over uh, Qatar, only had, like, less than 10 aircraft, and now the yeah, company has, yeah. obviously, well over 200, um, but, yeah, I, I'm really curious. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, he, he, he's a gift to the aviation press. Oh, uh, oh in, such in, a gift. In, in, yeah. in, in terms of, I think he'd be, he'd be greatly, greatly missed. Yeah, for, he will uh, be missed. For, for uh, you know, the, 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 the pithy quote. And the going off script. Going off script. Oh, no. and, I wonder how this new CEO would Frank, be. Frank, Frank comments that... Uh, uh, you know, you come back with uh, from, from from press conferences or whatever, or, or like media huddles, and <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think it, it, Dubai Air Show in November will be a, will be a, a little bit of a, a quieter quieter place yeah. without him uh, him kind of uh, talking. Steve, what about you? What what have you uh, found out in the news? Um, I've got a new story about Britain Norman, um, uh -huh. white based Britain Norman. Yeah, um, sleep. Famous for their Islander aircraft, um, first from 1965. Can you believe it's 1965 wow. vintage aeroplane? Uh, production's coming back to the Isle of Wight. They've been produced out in Romania since the late 60s. And uh, Britain Norman has brought the production line back to Benbridge. And they're looking to have the first UK-built example ready for completion by May. So um, nice to see some, some aircraft production returning to the UK. That's... Yeah. Uh, a nice right and what a great aeroplane you know i think there's, there's well over a thousand island has been built over the years and it's one of those aircraft that have opened up routes you know the the short takeoff and landing capabilities not just island hopping as the yeah you know, the island name suggests but in and out of jungle strips and all sorts of things it's been one of those aircraft that really connected people so uh, an important aeroplane yeah okay what about you Tim? what's caught your eye uh so obviously uh we can't get away from anything from uh talking about events in israel uh gaza obviously the horrific uh terror attack um on the 7th of october um uh, and from the aerospace point of view obviously there's a the aerospace and, and, and aviation point of view there's a there's a number of, of uh implications or, or or factors to consider um, particularly, I suppose, is is that's you know the, the the border would be one of the most surveilled in the world, yeah. and um, how how the inf how Hamas managed to infiltrate that using drones, paragliders. Uh, there was some talk of uh, some also some electronic warfare jamming, uh, and using using tactics uh, and, and, and methods that we, we saw in Ukraine. So obviously, you know, everyone's now familiar with um, uh, footage from, from quadcopters yeah. dropping, yeah. Uh, dropping uh, you know, kind of hand grenades on, well, not hand grenades, but, you know, um, explosive onto tanks uh, and knocking them out in, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Well, Hamas is actually, you know, using uh, similar sort of, uh, been using similar sort of uh, drones to take out uh, um Israeli tanks, also Israeli border posts as well. So they've got like unmanned or uncrewed border posts, sensors and things mm -hmm. like that. And they were using drones to kind of create a gap there. So I think, I think it's, it, it, there's, there's, there's implications in there and there's, there's, there's lessons to be learned there about, um, uh, you know, kind of drones, asymmetric warfare. Uh, also, the fact that these rocket that, that while they were doing this, all the, there was all these rockets coming in, so they were swamping Israel, the Israeli defences, who were watching, obviously watching the skies. They were using the Iron Dome interceptors. All the meanwhile, drones, paragliders were were coming in and, and sort of infiltrating over the border. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's one of the things where you know uh, watch this this space how it develops. Uh, you know, US is moving moving carrier uh, groups in there. There's a US Marine 
uh, sort of tax force as well. Um, so uh, and and the US is kind of beefing up its its deployments uh, mm, yeah. in the in the region as well as to 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 try and kind of contain this. Um, so yeah. Mm. Um, and the other thing uh, I spotted as well, again, it's it's kind of conflict uh, based, uh, and and this got almost got kind of almost um, uh, missed over because of the the what was happening in in, in Israel, but was the Actamas. So people have been pushing for the Actamas. Uh, this is the long range uh, missile, uh, sorry, long range sort of rocket guided rocket from the US uh, that has been delivered now delivered to Ukraine and uh, GPS guided and uh, first use and it took out about uh, 20 uh, Russian helicopters at a couple of forward bases. Yeah. So a massive huge loss. I mean, you know, the the stuff that was there on, on kind of the Russian telegram where were, they were saying it was the biggest loss that they'd, they'd had, yeah. you know. And, Potential game changer. Yeah, so it's put, it put, it's put more of the the Russian rear areas uh, at risk. You know, it's adding to the uh, the, the 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 problems that the Russia has to face from things like you know scalp storm shadow, mm. um, so uh, yeah uh, another kind of uh, weapon has entered the the the, uh, the battle there. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. I've got you never guessed him. I've got a GA story. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be it wouldn't be no time without me talking about GA, would it? Go on. Um, but helicopters this time. Um, Airbus have demonstrated a new control system. Um, which is ultimately aimed for their um, city Airbus uh, eVTOL. Um, but it removes the need for cyclic and collective and pedals and the traditional. And I've done a little bit of helicopter flying over, never had a helicopter license, but flown with lots of friends who've got helicopters. And it really is like patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time, trying yeah. to get the thing to go in the direction you want. So yeah, this brings it down into you know, a single control. Um, so that, again, we talk game changer. This could be a game changer for not just the VTOL market, but it, it, you know it, the, the the helicopter market, both civil and military. You know, you, you've got a single control here, which takes up far less space in the cockpit um, and simplifies the the app. So of course, as I was saying, the next step now is to simplify the navigation and the mission preparation side of it. But that was a real, I think, is is a, a really big step in you know almost a. A next generation leap in, in rotary technology. So te- that's taking all the fun out of helicopter pilots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. First of all. <laughs> yeah, and and the other one that I've spotted, um, you may remember earlier this year, I went out to uh, to Boeing in, in Charleston and um, spent some time with the Eco Demonstrator mm-hmm. team. Um, Boeing have always, well, for the last twelve years now, have had an Eco Demonstrator each year for different projects they've been working on. Um, they've now got a, a new scheme, where as well as having their, their standard eco-demonstrator, um, they've got a series of eco-demonstrator explorer aircraft, which they use for a shorter amount of time. It could just be a couple of weeks. Um, and um, they've announced that the next of these projects is actually going to be a 737, um, which they've, uh, they're using in collaboration with United Airlines. And they're using it to monitor emissions from the, the engines. So this aircraft will have... SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, in one tank, and conventional kerosene mm. in another tank, and it will alternate in flight. But in order to measure this, previously they've measured from the ground. They're actually collaborating with NASA with their DC-8, um, which is the Airborne Science Lab, um, and that's going to fly behind the 737, oh, right. in effect, sniffing the emissions. Sniffing its exhaust. Sniffing its exhaust, exactly. Um, so I think, again, really interesting stuff there. Um, by the time this podcast goes out, we will also have had our blog out on the Eco Demonstrator. I've done a, um, a more in-depth feature looking back at the legacy of Eco Demonstrator and what the, the project has, has given to the aviation world over the last 12 years, you know, down to the winglets on 737 MAX and all sorts of, yeah, and a lot of SAF development. Um, and you know, again, a, a nice little segue into an event that we've got coming up here at the Society, which is our Greener by Design uh, Specialist Group Conference, which is on contrail management. And that's here at uh, Fort Hamilton Place on the 21st of November. So um, yeah. all very topical. Yeah, well, it's nice to see more research on it because I think, I think uh, the, uh, you know, talking to, to going, attending conferences and uh, uh, sort of events and, and, and press briefings on that, uh, there's... There's a lot of, uh, you know, our, our Greener by Design uh, uh, group has been, uh, you know, highlighting this about the potential to, for, for contrails. Yeah. But 
a lot of uh, a lot of the response, you know, a, a bit of the response has been, well, we, we don't really know what's the science behind it. We need more data, more data, more data, more data, more data, data, data. Um, so you know anything that, that that adds to the the sum of knowledge, yeah. and and you can you can you can point to that and sort of yeah. work that into the models. Yeah, uh, that that's really really good. You know, and that, that's the beauty of this. It's the concept that that NASA and United and and Boeing are working on now with the, with the explorers. It's not just looking at the emissions from the engines. It's also looking at the ice particles. Yeah, the whole it's the whole joined up um, um, thing. So. Yeah, a great, great project. Mm. Yeah, so if you want to know more about Contrails, uh, yeah, the Green by Design uh, conference is 21st of November at uh, Full Hamilton Place. So, uh, November issue. We've got, a, we've got a packed issue, haven't we, Genk? Mm. Uh, what have we have got in the November issue? I'll, I'll start off. Uh, so, uh, the one of the things we're looking at there is uh, US uh, deployments uh, in the Middle East, Gulf Air Power. Very, very uh, topical at the moment. Uh, US has been... Um, uh, beefing up its deployments with F-35s uh, for um, Iranian uh, kind of uh, saber rattling in the, you know, in the uh, uh, in, in the Persian Gulf. Uh, you know, there was a there was, a, there was some worries about it be a re rerun of the 1980s tanker war. Mm -hmm. Plus, also they've been counting uh, Russian aircraft over Syria and Russian aircraft trying to harass uh, US drones. Uh, so the, the, uh, the Americans had, had put in uh, F-35s, also sent A-10s in there as well. Mm -hmm. um, and lo and behold, they just got them back. And then all, obviously that's kind of Israel and, and the uh, Hamas uh, thing had, 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 uh, had, had blown up. And the, these ones had now, uh, some, of the, some of the F-35 parts were now heading sort of straight back, it seems. Yeah. So very, very topical piece there. Yeah. Uh, Bella, what have you got in the what sort of what what have you what have caught your eye in, in mm. next issue? Yeah, what else um, have we got? One article that I really enjoyed reading uh, was the growth cycle recommences by Cerium Ascend Consultancy authors, pretty much talking about kind of where commercial aviation stands today after we can, you know, easily say we definitely are in the post-pandemic era, mm. um, but kind of begs the question of whether we should stop. Kind of setting our benchmark on pre-COVID levels because yeah. I think mm. it's so easy to say, especially as journalists, the amount of times I've written pre-COVID yeah. levels <laughs> that this matches up to pre-COVID or it's under pre-COVID levels. But now it's like quite a few years on. Now you know most, um, you know the majority of airlines are back to pre-COVID levels and have been for a little while, if not higher than some, some of them are below, but you can kind of just say that's just normal yeah. fluctuations yeah. in you know capacity. Um, and so it's a, it's a really great article just kind of looking at where we are now, uh, the kind of changes, even seeing freight, um, you know, air freight kind of change and how even though uh, during the pandemic in some way, air freight, you know, actually did well. Yeah. Um, and right now they're below levels, uh, below the, uh, 2020, 2021, but that's just because there's more belly, belly capacity in yeah. commercial airliners. So it's just like kind of taking a deep dive into what, why things look the way they are and how I think it's important we stop um, looking at comparing always to pre-COVID. I think it's still important, you know, it was such a massive part of the yeah. aviation It industry, is, but, but yeah, it's become a fixation. I think exactly. it's time, time for, and having the, the stats there from Syrian, I think it really- Great make, stats. Make, great stats, it really makes the, the point really, really well. Yeah, so it's, it's a good. really positive story. It's oh, yeah. really exciting. Do we think that means that we're gonna see uh, bigger orders at the uh, Dubai Air Show next I month? I hope so. Do you think that's going to be the because the, uh, airlines in growth mode because we 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 had big audience from Indian yeah. Airlines earlier this year. And Paris Paris was um, was was huge for Indian Airlines. Yeah, wasn't it? So, yeah. Be interesting yeah. to see so, how Dubai pans out. Definitely. Okay, yeah. Steve. What about you? Um, What's caught your eye on this upcoming issue? We may remember in the last podcast I mentioned that I've been out to Japan. Uh, yes, Kyoto for the International Council of Aeronautical Sciences. Um, emerging Technologies Forum, um, where we looked at EV tolls and the barriers and the opportunities that, yeah. uh, that they presented. And it just struck me thinking that, is Japan the nation that could really seize this EV toll revolution? Mm. Because having experienced Tokyo for the first time myself, um, you know, it is a nation which relies on trains. You've got the bullet train, you know, 200 mile an hour trains, you know, going long distances at relatively affordable prices. But in the cities themselves, I actually did some research, the average speed on the roads in in Greater Tokyo area is less than ten miles an hour. Yeah. 
So is there a, um, a business case here for bringing people from the outskirts of the greater Tokyo area to Tokyo to get onto the train where they can then go, yeah, as, as I did, from Tokyo to Kyoto for less than 60 quid. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, um, yeah, the conference that I was at, there's lots of talk about, um, you know, the air traffic management making this work because you've got charging times, you've got maintenance times, mm. you've got limited space on the vertiport. Yeah. So the the operation of any VTOL or urban air mobility craft is going to be down to how the shortest amount of time you could be on the pad. So obviously when you're on the ground, you're not making money, same as any other air transport mm -hmm. system. Um, but you also need to be able to charge it. Yeah. So again, it struck me that being on the bullet train, you know, you you, you the you know at the peak there are I think sixteen trains between Tokyo and Kyoto in both directions at any one time yeah. you know with i think something like 1500 people on each train and the average delay on those trains for the entire year and this includes obviously japan is prone to earthquakes and cyclones mm. and natural events like that the average delay is 27 seconds now somebody who's just got the train today down from, <laughs> from nottingham to london and has complained all morning bitterly about my you know, we've had the wrong kind of floods i think on the trains today um, yeah, if a nation can make this work, yeah. is Japan yeah. the nation that can do it? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the difference between Japan and UK is they've got they've got working trains, haven't they? Yeah, <laughs> they have working, yeah. It's it's a difficult one to call, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, you one hand that you know Japan's got this high tech, uh, you know, forward looking kind of outlook. I mean, they they already use, I mean, they already use drones in agriculture, yeah. while everybody else around the world was going. Oh, I don't know about these. I don't know these about flying robots. So they, they, you know, that they, they've already been integrated into Japanese agriculture for years. Um, so the question is, yeah, is is what's the, what do the, I suppose, what the advanced air mobility give you that trains don't? Yeah. you're right. If you, if you can get them into the outskirts, getting you to yeah. the train. Yeah, yeah. We, to... We've spoken a lot about regional air mobility yeah. and urban air mobility. Well. You know, we know regional regional air mobility is perhaps another step beyond yeah. in terms of yeah. battery battery life and density and, and range. So if you can get people onto these trains, then uh, and Japan has a culture of trains. You know, they yeah. you, know, you know you know the bullet train's been around now since what the 60s, 70s, something like that. Um, and if you can get your people to avoid that traffic congestion, bring them in. But again, it's down to how cost-effective you can make that transport. But, but it's also point-to-point, point, isn't it? It is. In, in, yeah. in, in terms of uh, getting you closer to your destination rather than, than going through, oh, I've got to change from this train to that train yeah. to this train to that train to, uh, to finally where I'm going to get going. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What, about, what else have we got in, in the upcoming issue? Um, I'm going to go from one extreme to the other. Go on. I'm going to go to Concord. Concord. 20 years this month from Concord's final commercial flight. It is. Yeah. Um, and we have Jean Pinet, the yeah. uh, French test pilot, um, one of the, uh, along with um, Andre Tugat, the, um, the, the first pilot to push Concord through the sound barrier, has looked back on Concord and asked, why does it still have this following today, 20 years after it retired from service? And if you think about it, it's the only aeroplane that we don't say it's the. We say, yeah, mm. it's. We don't say the Concorde. We say Concorde. Mm. Still, yeah. it just has captured. And as he said, you know, it, it harks from an era where it was an inspirational product. It, and as he summed up in, in his title, he said, "Concorde, a work of art." Yeah. And it is. It just is such a a beautiful aircraft, a capable aircraft, that inspired generations. And it, it's um again, you know. It's unusual for us at aerospace to take a look back into the history books rather than what's going on now or in the next 20 years. But I think with something like Concorde, it's important that we do that. And to have it from the, from one of the test pilots, yeah, brilliant yeah. article. Absolutely well, it, brilliant. the thing is, it's still, it still looks like it belongs in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a future that, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the SSTs flying around and the, the, along with airships, you know, is, that's, the, that's the sort of like aviation future that never happened. It's interesting that the, uh, the, the new hotel that's just opened, uh, well, just near us actually, mm. uh, here, uh, the Peninsula Hotel in, in London, um, you know, a very um, high, high market uh, chain. Um, 
they've got a new Brooklyn's restaurant with a, I think it's 44 foot con- metal Concorde on the roof of their yeah. restaurant. I looked it up last night. It weighs a ton and a half, that model does. Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, and it's been made, yeah, it's, it's not a, you know, an accurate scale replica. Yeah, yeah. It's an artistic interpretation. Yeah, yeah. But isn't that what Concorde's about? It's yeah, 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 yeah. It looks absolutely yeah. yeah. And the, yeah. the Lego Concorde as well. I mean, yeah. sold out. Yeah. Absolutely sold, yeah. sold out. You know, people people picking up there. Yeah, so, um, wow. Um, so the other thing we've got in, in this issue is, well, we've got uh, a look at uh, Keith Hayward, uh, Professor Keith Hayward has taken a look at uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the uh, defense, UK defence deals, uh, Al Yamara uh, in particular. So uh, UK has supplied, been, been supplying, uh, you know, combat aircraft to Saudi Arabia since the lightning uh, through uh, tornado uh, and Eurofighter. And now there's some talk about uh, whether, uh, you know, it could uh, potentially join GCAP. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with Japan and Italy, um, obviously there's pros and cons with that, uh, which uh, which Keith uh, explores as to okay, you're going to get extra money, but uh, funds put into there, but uh, what would their role be, and are there is the GCAP partnership at a stage where you want an extra partner in there yeah. to to, when you're still trying, you're really in the concept uh, concepting phase now, um, where you're still trying to kind of uh, work out well. Here are the t- here are the building blocks of technologies that come together for it. Uh, so uh, really interesting uh, piece by, uh, by 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 Keith there, and also a bit of a delve into the archives there as to uh, you know previous yeah. uh, previous deals. What else have we got? There's the uh, uh, the return of nuclear propulsion. Indeed. Um, by Rob Coppinger really great article kind of talking about how the article opens with you know while the recent um film Oppenheimer kind of focused on of course the destructive power of nuclear weapons um there's also a lot of peaceful uses for Mm. it uh, especially in space um even just looking at how um nuclear thermal propulsion you know has twice the propellant efficiency of chemical rockets and with all these big plans to go to mars and far away uh, it would actually kind of be so much more efficient and it could be you know a really good business case um, and kind of talking about uh, a lot of the countries who are involved in it um, yeah it's a really great article so I mean, we're not for, for clarification here we're not talking about a project Orion uh, nuclear spaceships kind of uh, lifting off under nuclear power mm-hmm. from uh, anywhere on, on earth the ideas are these are deep space yeah, propulsion yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, propulsion um, uh, kind of uh, systems uh, and really for, for going to Mars but also I think for the for the kind of uh, circular lunar uh, economy mm-hmm. Of you need a sort of space tug that will be in there, and, and you wouldn't have to really fuel too much that that kind of thing. But yes. I mean, it's just since it's come back, I wonder, I wonder how much uh, you know. Even if you were to launch with a chemical rocket, I wonder how much opposition or pushback you might get from people who are. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it, there are there's nuclear and there's nuclear propelled spacecraft already. Yeah. You know, there's there's, mm. there's already in space. There's mm-hmm. there's uh, you know a Voyager. I mean, that's got like a uh, an isotope on it. You know, that that's there. But it's it's still kind of a little bit of a, a nervous, I yes. think, a nervous yeah. thing. If you were to sort of say, all right, we've got this thing launching from Cape Canaveral, um, and people will be there thinking, well, okay, well, what if it. Uh, does a SpaceX and yes. does a, a rapid unscheduled <laughs> <laughs> disassembly uh, all over Miami? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, we've got a really good um, uh, uh, issue lined up, along with all the usual stuff. Uh, uh, we've got the uh, transmissions, we've got the book reviews, uh, library editions, society news in the back. Yeah. Uh, what else have we got coming up at the society in terms of uh, upcoming events? What are we looking forward to? So. Um, We've got the light aircraft design conference. Why are you looking at me when it comes to general aviation? Why do I always? And oh yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to, yeah, it's um, yeah, a highlight of the year for me. So very yeah, and they, they're, 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 I think the challenges this year is, is a firefighting aircraft. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. uh, design a firefighting aircraft. Uh, yeah. We've also got the first the first aerosol late film night, 10th of November, mm-hmm. Battle of Britain. Battle of Britain. Is this where we just relay off Battle of Britain quotes, Tim? You know, yeah. Don't just stand. What? You've not seen the Battle of... I'm trying to catch up to all oh, the movies, and films and things I need to see. Right. 
And I won't even be there. Your homework for this weekend is to watch Battle of Britain. Okay, I will. It is an iconic film of not just British aviation history, Mm -hmm. but it's an iconic film in its own right. I expect quotes of lines okay, this time next yeah. week, okay? I will, definitely. <laughs> so we've got that happening on the 10th. Uh, book hop now, because I think that is going to be really, really um, uh, popular. And the important thing with it is a special screening, because afterwards we have a Q&A with aviation historian Dr. Sarah Louise Miller. Uh, she is the author of Women Behind the Few. Uh, so she's, uh, and her sort of book it was about, uh, is about uh, the, the role of uh, WAFs in World War Two, particularly in uh, you know, in, in the control, uh, the filter rooms, yeah. uh, the control centres, intelligence, uh, the Y service, so they were intercepting kind of German comms, yeah. and they were in touch with all the pilots as well, and doing all the kind of uh, vectoring as well. So it's going to be a brilliant event, and yeah. you get to see Battle of Britain on the big screen. Yeah, 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 not watching on the TV or on a, on a yeah, DVD. Yeah. Yeah. DVD. Um, How old am I? Uh, um, next week uh, we also have uh, careers in aerospace and aviation live it's the careers fair Um, hopefully this will this will be coming out just before it I think Uh, yes yeah so uh, if you're you're quick you might be able to still still go over there but that's that's gonna be a a really good uh, days uh, uh, careers fair all the people are there you want to see in one place and uh, the opportunities there are are just amazing Green by Design Specialist Coop Confer- uh, Conference, Contrails. We've already yeah, mentioned that. 21st of November here at the uh, RASHQ. And then you guys are heading out to Dubai, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, so we're off. off uh, we'll be covering the Dubai Air Show in uh, mid-November. So if you're out there, you know anyone who's out there, do come along and stop, say hi, look us up. Uh, if you're there and you're exhibiting, you've got aviation news, get in touch. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we'll be out there and we'll be covering the news there all week uh, from uh, Sunday to Thursday, won't we? Yeah. And that'll be daily blog be so, dead, yeah, dead. Yeah, so, so watch watch every morning for the for the previous day's news from Dubai yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, moving on what have we what have been watching reading playing uh, shall I shall I head yeah, you, go, you go first yeah, so I've been I've been reading uh, a book on a childhood hero of mine uh, Stanford Tuck oh. uh, hero of the Battle of Britain by uh, Dr. Helen uh, uh, Dove who is uh, Writing about one of, I think you know, he he seems to be a. There's not been lots of books about, um, uh, you know, kind of Douglas Bader, mm. uh, but I think this is the, this is the, I think it's the the only one I, a biography of, of uh, Robert Stanford Tuck, uh, who was previously immortalised in uh, Fly for Your Life. Mm-hmm. I had a copy when I I, I was young, uh, brilliant book, and I, and actually I, the copy I had was uh, specially marked as. Uh, I have a children's edition or young special young persons edition. Uh, so she's done a lot of research. She's she's had done a lot of uh, sort of delving in archives and stuff. And again, it's a little bit like one of the things we've uh, uh, with Winkle Brown is some of the some of the stuff almost maybe embellished uh, or exaggerated or. or um, you know, obviously the, the uh, Tuck was a, was a was a major hero, Battle of Britain uh, ace, um, and uh, you know still is a hero. Uh, but there's a, there's a little bit there that have perhaps been um, adapted or or maybe uh, embellished for a 1950s kind of audience. Win fly for your life yeah. in order to kind of uh, make it a little bit more exciting, maybe for 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 that all particular audience. You know, you think of things like Reach for the Sky, the Dam Busters. Um, uh, it's in that sort of genre of, okay. of, of kind of of, of kind of uh, post-war. Kind of post-war sort of search for heroes, maybe you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, UK is very drab at that time. It's austerity, Britain, uh, and all of a sudden you've got you've got, you've uh, got a hero. You've got heroes, and that, that's obviously that's also when when Bond comes in. You yes. know, uh, so that's yeah. Ian Fleming. You know, writes about Bond. Uh, you know, he's uh, Bond's off to colourful, exotic places, and yeah. he's having a whale of a time. And uh, uh, while well, everyone's stuck at home on rationing, um, <laughs> so really good, really good book, um, and uh, you know I'm, I'm enjoying that. You know, learning a little bit more about it. You know, he it does not 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 to detract from uh, Tuck uh, uh, at all. No, but you get the real story. You get the real yeah. story, and I think I think part of his luck. So obviously, one of the things was it was Tuck's luck, uh, and he, you know he, he he managed to rack up these kills. About I think it was about 30, 30 kills, twenty eight thirty kills. Um, but I think uh, a, a part of it is wasn't 
wasn't his luck. It was just he was flying a lot. And yes. he would go up there and he would go up on, on like air tests, weather tests. Yeah. I'll, I'll just go and do a long range patrol. Uh, all this, any uh, you know, opportunity you could get. Any together, opportunity, yeah. any join other other people. Who, oh yeah, I'll just go and do a, a rhubarb over, and that's how he came da- came down. He'd, he'd already flown the, the, the same day. He went yeah. off on, on another. Yeah. No, yeah, I'll go and, and just just go out on hunting. Yeah, all the time. Wow. And obviously, if you're up, yeah. uh, and and ground control rings up and says, "Oh, we we've got a single radar over that. over Margate." Yeah, you're going to get, you're gonna get it, aren't you? Yeah, and he was an absolute crack shot. Brilliant. What else are we? Who else has been uh, right, reading, writing? I've been writing, listening. I've been listening. listening. I've been doing a bit of commuting this month, so I've been listening to podcasts again. Um, I've mentioned Battleground Ukraine on, yeah. on our podcast previously. Um, this is something I've listened to for. It's got um, Sol David and Patrick Bishop, two well-known authors and historians, that uh, did this. And they started off with um, the Battleground series, looking back at the Falklands campaign. And this was just prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So they then launched the Battleground Ukraine pod which is now twice a week. And over the last week or so, they've done a number of spin-offs looking at the Gaza-Israel conflict. But for me, it's interesting because they've actually looked back at the history of the conflict and put it into, you know, where does this come from? Not just what's going on right now with missiles and rockets coming over the border, but, you know, the the, the origins of Israel, Gaza, Mm. the Strip, you know, how it's come to it and where the tension has been over the last decades. So that's been really interesting, and and of course then having the contemporary view there as to to, to what's going on, what technologies are being used, and, and the operations that are going on right now. So that's so they're now bless them, you know, we do one part podcast a month, they're now doing two plus a week. So um, it's um, but brilliant, brilliant work, and highly recommended. Battleground Ukraine, mm. fantastic. What about you, Bella? Apart from, apart from uh, your 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 watching, uh, recommend watching a Battle Britain. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's my homework. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm also podcasting. I love podcasts. They're mm-hmm. my favourite. It um, feels a bit meta to talk about podcasts on the podcast. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but no, I, I found this podcast a few months ago, maybe even a year ago, called Space and Things Podcast with um, Emily Carney. Her name is, she's a US Navy vet. And Dave Giles, he's a musician and a just space enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And they, they have a great podcast. Um, they interview people in the industry. They talk about a lot of historic things. Um, yeah, they recently, their latest interview was with Mark Seller, who is the um, United Launch Alliance VP for the Vulcan rocket mm. development uh, program, um, which is very timely because yesterday they announced uh, the rocket certification flight will take place on Christmas Eve. Um, mm. But yeah, they, they do a lot of great stuff. Uh, they talk about trends. Um, they recently did an episode on... Uh, the wives of the Apollo era and what it would have been like, ah. which reminds me a lot of. Um, there was a book on that a few years oh, really? ago, the Astronauts' Wives Club. Oh, there you uh, go. Which, I think I want to say it was even made into a series in the US. It. Might have been on Paramount or somebody did a series of it. But yeah, it's a really interesting story. Yeah, well, it, it reminds me a lot of the show um, for all mankind because they <laughs> yeah. show a lot of what the wives kind of experience. So yeah, really great podcast. And I'm of course, which who knows how long it'll take me until I stop saying this, but I'm still reading. Lift Off by Eric Berger. I, as I said, I take so long reading nonfiction, but I'm loving it. I was reading it for two hours the other day, um, and just so interesting, like the early beginnings of SpaceX mm. and just Elon Musk. He's just crazy. Like he, yeah, he, he really pushed them to the limits. My yeah. goodness, they they would stay, which is just a classic entrepreneur um, story. But they would, you know, stay at the office all night, and they all stayed so long. They would just they all moved there and would get this like <laughs> private um they would get this private jet to go back and forth to their um hotel. It's just crazy stuff, really wow. interesting. But I'll I'll keep you updated when I finish that, maybe at the end of the year. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got one more I've got actually reminds me of, of something I've been listening as well. Uh, Fighter Pilot Con- podcast, obviously. Oh, yes. uh, yeah. fantastic podcast. Um, and uh, recent episode was brilliant on uh, Strato Launch Rock, oh. world's biggest uh, yeah. aircraft. Uh, were there with one of the one of the test pilots of that thing. Uh, incredible insight. Uh, the person who was interview- doing the the interview really knew what they were talking about. And one of the things that uh, staggered me out of that is this this thing is six engines, six seven four seven engines. <laughs> uh, you know, two fuses large. It's meant to to, to drop rockets. 
Uh, it only uses 60% power on takeoff. Yeah. Yeah. It's so overpowered. I listened to that as well. They said they've never opened it up to 100% no. power. No. Uh, <laughs> they, they and they're, they're taking off from Mojave as well, yeah. where yeah. that is high, it's desert, it's hot, and you're yeah. thinking, wow, you know, if they, 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 <laughs> what would it be like if you if you went 100% power in it? But it was interesting. I, I listened to that same episode, and, and they, the test pilot was saying, because obviously it's, it's twin fuselage, so you're flying in an offset position. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you have to line up not on the centre line. And they said, that's... An, and I think he was asked about the taxiing performance and how, the, how they taxi it off the... Because although Mojave's a very, very wide runway, there's still not a huge amount of space either side. And yeah. the simple answer is... We don't. We shut it down. Yes. We, we, we tow it to wherever we need it, yeah. to the end of the runway and go. But yeah, what a machine. And like you say, a great interview by somebody who really knew the, the right questions to ask. Brilliant. Okay. So uh, finally, where can we keep up to date with the uh, Royal Air Society and the, and the magazine? Uh, Steve, where can we keep up with you? Um, well, the whole magazine's on aerosociety.com, where we've got our twice-weekly blog. Um, and on a personal level, I'm on uh, Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it this <laughs> week on R A E S Steve B, and I'm also on LinkedIn and on Facebook as Stephen with a PH Bridgewater, and that's where you can see my rants about old aeroplanes. <laughs> Bella, nice. yeah, uh, same as Steve. Uh, I'm on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it R A E S Bella R, and LinkedIn. I uh, follow me there too, <laughs> Bella Richards. Um, yeah, that's right. What about you, Tim? Uh, well, yeah, I'm on, still on X, R-E-S, Tim, R, and I have a similar handle on Blue Sky. So if you're one of the new people who's moved over to the Blue Sky, still behind a kind of a paywall there, you can come and uh, stalk me there. Um, finally, I think I, I, I would like to, to, to just sort of uh, do a shout out for um, any feedback, any questions, any any views, any comments you have mm. about this podcast. Uh, are you liking it? Uh, do you want to see more? Uh, what do you want us to talk mm. about? Uh, send it in. Uh, yeah. Send us, bro. You know, contact us through social media. Send us an email. Drop us a line. Uh, what have you? And uh, yeah, tell us, uh, tell us whether you like it or not. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Until next month. Uh, that's bye from me. And it's bye from me. And bye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>